Hey, creepy people. This is PNW Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. For each episode, we do a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on the topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous cases such as the misdeeds of Boeing, as well as lesser known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13 as well as our spooky stories from Pike Place and Raven's Manor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you'd like to listen. Have Have a a creepy-ass day! You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. Okay, so... We are actually going to talk about Effie Goodson today. Now, this was a requested case by my brother, who does not listen to this show. (laughs) He is in no way into true crime. He'd be a lot cooler if he did. I'm just going to tell you a little quick story. I was talking to my mother on the phone, and I was telling her, this was when I was getting, like, season four flushed out. I was like, what cases should we do in season four? And, um... My mother was at the lake at the time, and I had, like, FaceTimed her or whatever, and a couple of my brothers were there, my dad was there, but, you know, they were hanging out at the lake, and my, you could see my brother kind of, like, doing his own thing in the background, this is my oldest brother, doing his own thing in the background, and then I'm asking my mom, I'm like, well, you know, you have any case suggestions or whatever, and he just pops in out of nowhere, well, he lives in Holdenville, he just pops in, he's like, listen, you need to cover Effie Goodson. And I was like, where did you even come from? <laughs> you just popped in out of nowhere. He was like, it is crazy. You have no idea. You need to look into it. Just do that one. That one's, I'm requesting that one of you. And I was like, you're not even going to listen to it. But you know what? I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do the best I can on it. You always do. So then after we found Gary, I was like, listen, I not only, I like overdid myself because I not only am going to talk about this case, but I'm also going to bring in the guy who worked this case. So, uh, there you go. There's my, I overdo it attitude. (laughs) So brother, this one's for you. Uh, even though you're probably never going to hear it, your wife's probably going to listen to this episode. You're probably not, but that's okay. You can do your own thing. (laughs) Anyway, so we're going to talk about Effie Goodson today. I am Raven Rollins, and I'm here with Mandy. Hello. And we have a special guest today. I am going to let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about himself. Hello. (laughs) Hi. Hi. All right. My name is Gary Perkinson, and I was involved in law enforcement for 27 years. I retired at the rank of assistant special agent in charge with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation over the Special Investigations Unit. And you were also a Ada, Oklahoma detective, right? Homicide? I was. So I worked, uh, I started my career out in 1990 at Pauls Valley as a patrolman and ended up uh, 
coming to Ada in 1992 as a patrolman. And then in 1995, I was promoted to the rank of detective. And at that point, I worked everything from homicides to forgeries to drug cases, uh, anything that came down the pike. And I just remember going through, like, when I'm doing research for these cases, going, Gary Perkinson, Gary, who, who is this Gary Perkinson that's always in, in my newspaper feeds or whatever? <laughs> so we, we have you. I am here. You're here. He's awesome. In Oklahoma, at least, you don't see the FBI getting involved a lot because we have the OSBI, because they have so many resources. And didn't you, you did some training at Quantico as well, though, didn't you? I did. I went through the 264th session of the FBI National Academy. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, it was an honor. It really was. They, they say only 1% of American law enforcement officers get to attend. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. pretty awesome. That's really cool. That was, yeah. I'm very honored to get to go to that. That's really, really cool. That says a lot about you, too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) I really enjoyed it there. Okay, so we are going to start with... Now, I usually like to put a lot in here about um, about the victims. I did not find just a whole lot about this victim. Um, I have spoken to some of the family on both sides of this... Um, neither one of them really have a problem with us talking about it, but didn't really want to be on the show. And that's totally fine. Sure. Uh, there is one that was pending the, the person that found her. Um, but he, his health has declined. And so he is not going to be able to be with us either. So that's okay. Oh, this was 2003. Yes, and you know, I have to say, one thing that's really interesting about this is that when this all happened, and you know, and then when we had talked about it, I knew there was something that I remembered, and I was like, I know this case, I remember this case from the time it came out, mm-hmm. now I know why, I was pregnant. Oh, were you really? Um, when this happened, Ooh, yes. that would have been scary. In April of 2003, wow. I was seven months pregnant. Oh, wow. And so... So this one would have hit you. That's why I remember it so well. Okay. Yeah, that checks out. Because this would have been... That would have been pretty scary. My daughter was born in July of 2003. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that that would have been terrifying. We're going to start with... I'm just going to give you what I know about Carolyn. Her name was Carolyn McGrew Simpson. She was a 2001 graduate of Carrollton High School, which is in Kentucky. And was the daughter of David McGrew, from also from Carrollton. She had moved to Marshall, Kentucky after graduation, where she was employed at a bank. And then she moved to Oklahoma around 2002. This is only a year, but she had only been in Oklahoma for like a year before this happened. And she took a job. Well, she worked in a factory, factory and then she took a job at the Creek Nation Casino. So... Those of you who live in Oklahoma, you know we have a lot of casinos. I actually worked at one for two years. I think we have the most in the world, don't we? <laughs> I don't know. Or United States, We've at got least. a lot. I can a tell lot. you that. We've got a lot. Uh, unfortunately, that's almost all that I know about Carolyn. I have a few words from her family. Um, her uncle Robert says Carolyn was very special. I don't recall that there was a time in which I saw her that she wasn't smiling and brought positive feelings to those around her. Her kindness to everyone was evident at all times. That's a nice, that's I, nice. I know. We're going to tell you. It was a really, really hor- horrible case. So 
what I know about Effie was that someone had said, now I, I don't know, again, conjecture, whatever, um, but someone had said that she came from a really dysfunctional family that was full of abuse um, of all kinds, um, that like literally since she was a small child, her, her life was just about survival and, and kind of getting through. I don't know if that's true. That was actually said by a, an attorney, a Norman attorney named Brent Clark, who is apparently also planning to write a book on this case. I read that. Have you talked to a Brent Clark? No. <laughs> and do no. we know if the book's been... I, don't I have know. no I, idea. Be- I looked and I couldn't find well, it. Well, because this quote was given in like... 2003 or 2004. I, I haven't looked, heard anything about it well, I looked it since, to so. see if the book had been written and that I didn't see anything that had been published. So. There was a there was a book that I just ordered that had something about Effie in it. It wasn't this guy. It's called Murder in the Heartland by M. William Phelps. I, and I think that this book um, actually talks about several different type kinds of murders that happened of this type. I think the whole book is about just this type of okay. um, crime. Okay. Um, and it, I didn't get to read all of it. Like I just said, I ordered it, but I did see an excerpt where um, they had talked about this case. I don't know how detailed it is. The other things that we know about Effie is that there are reports that she was claiming that she was pregnant for up to a little over a year before this incident happened. Some reports say that she was claiming she was pregnant in January of 2002. Some reports say that she was claiming she was pregnant in spring of 2002. It kind of varies, but for the most part, she was quote unquote pregnant for all of 2002. And I mean, like, so convincing so that her husband thought she was pregnant. They had thrown her a baby shower. She had baby items around her home. And she was definitely planning on having a child. (laughs) Carolyn, on the other hand... Okay, so Effie was 37 37 at the time. She was almost 40 at this time. And then Carolyn was 21. She was very young. And her and her husband, Alan, were actually pregnant. They were pregnant. And when all of this happened, she was about six months pregnant. They had literally just got it, um, the sex confirmed, like the week prior, that they were going to be having a little girl. So that's heartbreaking. I had read that um, somewhere that Effie had told everybody she was having a little boy. Is that I had I heard that okay. as well. I saw that in some things as well. I didn't know if, how accurate that was. I don't know if that's if that's a thing she actually said or not. Yeah, that's just they said. He said. She said. But it's just know. a boy and a girl. You know. Yeah. Was, yeah. December twenty second, two thousand three. December the end of two thousand three, and Effie has been claiming that she's pregnant since spring of two thousand two. Because I did also see a claim where she said she got pregnant in January of 2003. So we've got claim. I don't know if if this is all the same claim. Like what what I feel like these claims are is that 
she said she was pregnant and then she would say she'd have a miscarriage or something like that. Because I, I saw can't, April of 2003. I can't see her like convincing people that she's pregnant for two years straight unless she's telling people that, you know, maybe she's losing. Well, and there's the child. really no way to know for sure. It's, no. it's just speculation. Yeah, I it mean, really, really is. Yeah. It really is. Okay, so Carolyn worked at this tribal casino in Okima. Effie was a patron there. Just go in and, and, you know, things you do in a casino. That's what she did in the casino. Uh, I'm not going to speculate on what she did in the casino, but I know that she was in the casino, okay? All right, so investigators believe that the two left the casino together because Simpson had just gotten off work. So Carolyn needed needed a ride home, and Effie said, I'll give you a ride home. Also, I have some baby stuff in the car for you if you want to come and get in the car, and I'll take you home and drop you off with this baby stuff. Some clothes, I think I baby read. Baby clothes, baby items. They entered, now they were seen by witnesses entering Effie's car at about 11 o'clock December 22nd that night. 11 o'clock is not late for people to be in a casino and especially people that don't really go to casinos or might live in a different state and they don't really have casinos. Man, people are at casinos at all hours. They're packed. I'm well, telling you. They make it to where you don't know what time it is. Yes. <laughs> on they, purpose. Yes, they do. So they really do. you can think it's a lot earlier and you're leaving early yeah. when it's really in the middle of the night. So yes. It's, it, That's a fact. They black out and sometimes they don't even have windows. They want you to be in there... This sounds crappy, but they want you to be in there as long as yep. you can be so in there. So it's very normal for someone spend to be in. Spend all the money you have. Yes, spend yes. all the money. At 11 o'clock at yeah. night. That's pretty and, normal. And I worked overnights. So, like, even even my sense was, like, this is just a normal day. Like, my body couldn't tell that it was dark yes. outside. So, yeah. You can stay in there for a lot longer than you think. I do want to mention that um, there was eventually later a receipt found that... It is believed that she did, in fact, have baby clothes in the car. I don't know for what purpose. I don't. I feel like she was planning to use them herself. Um, but there was a receipt found where she had purchased those baby clothes. So, 11 p.m. that night, that's the last time that she was seen alive. Effie, on the other hand, was admitted to the Holdenville Hospital ER five and a half hours later. <laughs> Here's the gruesome part. Uh, I feel like I need to put out like a trigger warning or something um, for anyone, but mostly like mama bears out there. It's going to get a little gross uh, and probably triggering. So with that being said, so she showed up at the ER about five and a half hours later, um, Holdenville Hospital. She had the dead fetus in tow. Uh, it was determined that this fetus was around six months in gestation. The ER doctor there said that Effie was, quote, borderline psychotic, end quote, after bringing the baby to the hospital. What I recall was if it was a baby boy. Yeah. Um, for some reason, I want to think that Carolyn had told Effie that... Um, she thought she was having a girl. Yeah. And, and it, it was, ended up being a boy. Yeah. And so um, then uh, Effie had made a comment, I think, to an EMT. said, hey, how's my baby girl? Yeah. It was a boy. 
Yeah. Yeah. And actually, the um, I do have comments from the EMS workers. Um, what One of them was a witness that testified that said she remarked, isn't she beautiful? And it ended up being, it was a boy. The boy, as it states in this article, was cold to the touch. When brought in, Effie had blood all over her. She had blood on her face. She had told ER that she had just given birth to this child on the side of the road and brought the child in. The child actually had bled to death because she had cut the umbilical cord and did not tie it off and it bled out of the umbilical cord. They even like went as far as to say like what the baby weighed and all of that, but I'm, I'm going to spare everyone of that because I feel like that's, that's even, we're getting into even more trigger territory. So I'm, I'm just going to skip over that part. So doctor, it was Dr. Fred Sanders. He was the ER um, doctor there that night. He said that she was quote, constantly denying that the baby was dead that she was hearing it crying when it obviously wasn't making any noise. She was asking God why he was punishing her and just kept rambling on and on from time to time. She had actually initially refused to let him examine her. And uh, he also testified that there were also moments that she would just, quote, be very straight and very serious, kind of like when I would catch my kids with their hands in the cookie jar, end quote. Like I said, they she had refused to let anyone examine her. And I think this is where the red flags were kind of flying up and where they got investigators involved. When when did you were you a detective on this or were you OSBI I was on this? OSBI. Okay. From what I understand, it's around this time police were called in and then they transferred her from that hospital in Holdenville to St. John's Medical Center where they did an actual exam and determined that she did not give birth to a child. I got the call later in the day um, after she had been examined in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the information that I had originally was that uh, there was a woman who uh, claimed to have delivered a baby that had not mm-hmm. but was in possession of a fetus. And so when I first heard this, I thought, you know, how did that happen? Did she get something from a university, a science department? What, yeah. what happened? And then we began to, to look at the options. So we began to look to see if there were any missing pregnant women mm-hmm. in that area. And there were. Uh, Carolyn Simpson was the one okay. that was missing. Was it at this time that... They kind of initialized a search for Carolyn. So the, um, I believe it was the Okima Police Department had mm-hmm. taken the report on her missing. Okay. So I, I think they were involved in the search for her prior to the OSBI even getting in, involved in right. this case. Right. Okay. But um, yeah, there was an extensive search for her uh, once we believed we knew who who was missing. Uh, December twenty sixth. A deer hunter found her, this was five days after she went missing, um, found her buried in a grave of leaves in a bar ditch near a home slash 
remote farm in Hughes County. And this is apparently a place that Effie had once lived around that area. Um, it was three miles south of Lamar, Oklahoma. Okay, three miles south. Yeah. So I had the same information about um, that somebody had found a body believed to be Carolyn Simpson. And so immediately I went to that location and uh, we found a body that we believed was Carolyn's. It was determined that she had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber firearm from behind the left ear and that her 25 week old fetus had been cut from her abdomen with razors. I cannot imagine seeing this. I feel so, like I want to I want to remove that from your brain. I would appreciate it. Wouldn't that have taken a while with razors? Yeah. I well I mean, yeah. I mean I'm I would assume that yeah. she was probably already gone. Yeah. When when she started but cutting. Still, but still, I mean, I still think that would take a while. It probably I mean, was. She was in the middle of the woods. She had all the time she yeah, needed. That's true. Yeah. So. Yeah. She, uh, so in her car, there was evidence that it, that was consistent with high velocity blood spatter. Ooh. From a from gunshot, the gunshot wound. Yeah. Um, and then, you know. And a twenty-two it, is a little handgun. Right? right. Okay. And it would have taken some time to, to do that cutting. Mm-hmm. No doubt killed her in the car and then took her to this place that she knew she would have some time to do this yeah we had our osbi crime scene team there that collected evidence we conducted and we're still conducting interviews as far as the person who found the body Mm -hmm. Uh, once the body was positively identified as carolyn simpson uh, you know we were in constant communication with the district attorney's office who ultimately did charge her so when she was examined in Tulsa they ended up contacting I believe Tulsa PD who contacted us okay, so she uh, was, I think that's how it filtered yeah. down yeah and then you know you go to the last place that she was and you go hey any missing pregnant woman around here yes. and you get one and now you have a positive identi- uh, identification so I mean you can put two and two together and then you know connect the evidence from there she was at the time she was facing kidnapping charges uh, and two counts of first degree murder. She declined to make a statement. Correct. So her first appearance, she was led to the courtroom in January uh, January 27th. Oklahoma courts had ruled that the murder charges could be filed in the killings of the fetus if they could prove that the fetus could have survived outside of the womb when she removed it. Every precaution had been taken. Could this fetus have, have survived? Um, but at the time, under the state's abortion law, a fetus was presumed viable after the 24th week. This fetus would have been 25 weeks old. We get into, I'm sure, you know, you're probably in on this, uh, looking at where the gun came from and everything like that. I read, uh, somewhere that she had purchased it from a Walmart in Holdenville. She allegedly had told her husband um, after she had brought in this baby, like, I guess the only thing she told her husband was that she had this baby on the roadside. And that's, like, the only the only thing that she would say to him. Um, he is actually the one who drove her and the baby to the hospital. So DNA testing, they did do DNA testing, right? It came back as a match. 
to Carolyn Simpson. Uh, and I think that was probably the nail in the coffin. So I, I feel like this is a very rare thing that happens. Like sometimes when you see a case like this, you see it everywhere, but it's really not, it, it's not that common. I had found that there had been at least 10 cases in the, the whole entire United States, including this one, uh, since 1987, where this had taken place. So it's, it was not that common. Like, do you look at, do you look at victimology in this or do you have to look at the individual first? I would say in this type of situation, it would not be more, it would not really be more of a victimology standpoint. Um, because I think Carolyn Simpson really was just at the wrong place at the wrong time with someone that wanted a baby yeah and it could have been anyone that had a baby that was pregnant that was around her yeah and i do want to mention that um carolyn's husband alan did say like she has never mentioned this person before so they like they weren't friends in real life she was like he said i've never heard her say this person's name before so i think she had decided that she wanted a baby because she had made up all you know all these elaborate plans and that she was going to find someone that had one and that she was going to make it look like she had had this child so she wouldn't unravel everything she had told everyone and you never know i mean some people can tell these because they're afraid of being alone and they think if they that maybe the husband wanted a baby and he had said if we don't have children i'm going to leave you yeah. i mean that's speculation but I'm just saying that you never know the reasons behind it. There's Mm -hmm. probably a reason behind it. It's probably not just because she was, you know, like you said, it's like, you know, like someone said she could be psychotic and that's, yeah, that's it. I think it was more calculated than that. that, Yeah. I don't think it's quite that easy to, that's why, you know, I was kind of on the fence because (laughs) I really had to think about where she could be coming from Mm -hmm. and I think that she do you think desperation is tied into it well I think she became desperate at the end because she was becoming near the worst baby probably from from people right and um a lot of times people do really things that just don't make any sense to anyone when they become desperate in a desperate situation and we don't know that her husband wasn't telling her he didn't want to leave her he you know if she didn't have a you know if they didn't have kids you never know what's going on behind closed doors we don't know if you know she felt like no i can't have someone leave me because she was maybe left as a child we don't know but i do think there was i do think there's some obviously mental health issues there right obviously but i think that it was more than that yeah i think she knew what she was doing so do you think that the first degree murder charge was appropriate like premeditated yes yeah yes i do i i think i think it was now i don't think the first degree murder honestly is appropriate for the baby i think it would have been right. second degree yeah um well i think she planned on keeping that baby. i do too that's I, why I, I, don't, I don't think she wanted it even to manslaughter yeah for the baby because i think yeah. the baby she didn't know to tie the umbilical cord yeah you know one of the things i wanted to bring out on this was the teamwork that was involved it was not just uh, hughes county sheriff's office or just the osbi Mm -hmm. it was the uh, hughes county sheriff's office the osbi okima police department tulsa police department hospitals doctors nurses 
And then we also had the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Mm. They played an instrumental part in this wow, as well. really? Yeah, they actually, um, somewhere in the investigation, I had learned, somebody had told me that uh, this, they believed, was the eighth case in American history. Yeah. And uh, they actually, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, I believe, had a, a profile of the previous ones who had uh, committed crimes such as this one. Really? And and there is a, a profile that's out there for that. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to that's look interesting. into that. That's interesting. Does that profile fit her? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Yep, I, it, I need to look into this profile. <laughs> it was I know. interesting. It's such an unusual crime. Yeah. But we had a couple more in the years after this one. Really? And yeah, guess who they were calling? Me. Wow. Yeah, because they were saying, hey, this is what we've got. I think there was one in Georgia, that maybe Atlanta, somewhere I had talked to somebody out there that was working one. Wow. And, you know, just to pick my brain about things and, and I let them know about the profile. And yeah. It's just a crazy thing. I love hearing that. I love hearing when agencies work together like that because you hear in so many, you know, especially if you're true crime aficionado, you know, you've heard so many cases where agencies don't want to work together or even go back to, let's just take it back to California. You know, when we had all these serial killers running around and simply the counties didn't want to work together, Uh, let alone, you know, agencies from the entire state or states over whatever i think that's amazing that's one of the things that i think is the strength of the osbi because a lot of times the osbi will will have that agent uh, reside in a police department or sheriff's office so they develop those relationships and that's know great i didn't is. know that actually yeah very important that, yeah that's really good and you know i think a lot of times with these cases that not just us but any true crime podcast would do you know the natural inclination, I think, for people, if they haven't been solved, is to automatically, they the police didn't do their job. The police didn't do this. And that's not, that's, that's not you know, always the case. No. And sometimes there's just not enough clues there. And especially mm-hmm. if it was before DNA. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it, it's just, it's yeah. not that. So I think sometimes it, it just falls back on, you know, on the police and yeah. the OSBI and the, the county. And I just don't think that's then, always fair. But then you have cases like this where everything works so beautifully. Yes. You you have everything that you need to have. You Your agencies are working together. You're getting stuff done. You're getting stuff done quickly. I think yes. this is a, a great case well, of I, showing that. I think it does more than not. Yeah. It, it, it does. does. Yeah. yeah. We are much better at communicating with each other uh, law enforcement agency wise mm-hmm. than you know in the decades before but I can tell you in my experience when I was in law enforcement uh, we always had I always had good communication and good relationships with my agencies because they I needed them to know that if they needed me at three in the morning I would be there right yeah that's great I love that. That's why you were in charge. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. But, you know, social media, I think, as, tell me if I'm wrong, but played a role in agencies becoming closer, maybe working closer together. I, I think if you use it correctly, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. yeah. And, uh, you know, there's just, I can tell you numerous stories about, you know, things that you think would never be solved but were solved because we had cooperation with other agencies. Yeah. I have a, a case that I had worked one time where there there were very few leads um, 
you know, I was looking for a black lesbian woman named Apple. Yeah. That was all I had. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to finally identify her. But I had the help of a Texas Ranger that I knew. Right. And and he helped me. I looked for her off and on for three and a half years. Wow. Finally found her. Yeah. And, you know, it, it matters. Relationships matter. Yeah. Uh, we were we got a kidnapped boy back one time. That's uh, wonderful. See, because that's of relationships. Yeah. So it's good. Well, and, and anything anyone can do to help, you know, if a... We all need to work together. Well, okay? and if a case <laughs> is cold or the police, the OSB, they look for the public's health. You, you can't solve something if you don't have some, you know... Information. Information. Right. And so... Yeah. To me, it's always been like, who does it, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's a podcast. It doesn't matter if it's someone that is, is transient Mm -hmm. on the, if they know something, they know something. Yeah. And so we can all work together to get the information to, you know, the police so they can solve the case. I think more than anything, we're a platform. Yes. To offer agencies to say, Hey. We can help you get your information out, or we can help you try to obtain information. Most definitely. Yes. Whatever that may be. And I think it's important. And I think we almost, if we choose to do this and, you know, choose to get these stories out there, then I think we have a responsibility yeah. to do that. Yeah. So traditionally, when a law enforcement agency would try to solve a case that wasn't easily solved, mm-hmm. We would rely on confidential informants, right? Right. And we would have to go out and talk to people and develop informants and try to get information about that. Yeah. But with with the internet, with social media, you know, all of that transpired in my career, over the course of my career. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started, you know, we didn't have Twitter. Yeah. We didn't have, you know, I was working on typewriters when I started. Right. Word processors. Yeah. Yeah. And so, (laughs) you know, with with the internet, with social media, with podcast platforms, that, that's another avenue that uh, would be a good opportunity for law enforcement agencies to highlight uh, cold cases and get that out there for people yeah. they otherwise wouldn't reach. Absolutely. I think so, too. I don't know. I, th- I think this is good for everyone, really. It is. It is, and we should be proud of what we do. I'm very proud of the podcasts out there solving cases yes. and helping free innocent people. And be proud of our fellow podcasters mm-hmm. that they are helping do this. Because like I said, it doesn't matter who helps yeah. as long as someone helps. Exactly. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. It doesn't matter. Because these victims' families, they just want the help. Yeah. They do not yeah. care who it is as long as they can get yeah. help to yeah. get their stories out. We're all after the truth, and somebody out there does know the truth. Guys, let's have world peace. We are the world. Yes, let's all <laughs> sing We Are the World. <laughs> I want to tell you real quick what she was uh, initially, what happened in the trials. Okay, so the first time she appeared in court, she said she was feeling ill. When the judge read the charges against her, she was actually, like, leaning forward and, like, spitting in, like, waste cans. They had to help her walk in, I read. Um, Yeah, and they said that she was going through withdrawal because she hadn't had her medication. Don't know what kind of medication that is or was. She was actually slumped forward in her chair at one point, staring into her lap um, for virtually the entire hearing. The defense attorneys twice sought a mental competency exam. Um, because I think that they their initial thing was she she had pled innocent, mm-hmm. and it was they were going to try to go with an insanity plea. Two witnesses testified that Effie actually had led them 
on January 9th to an area where the gun eventually found. And then Iris Daly, an OSBI agent, testified that they also found strips from a mop that were found near um, Carolyn's body, and those strips were also found in Effie's car. So there was a lot of evidence that tied them both together. Like, there was a lot of evidence against Effie. So, several witnesses also testified that Effie told them that she had been shopping all day on December 22nd. They found that receipt. I told you about that receipt earlier. Um, They did a search of the home, and they found crib, baby clothes, infant diapers, stuff like that. She was obviously prepared to take in a child in some way or another. And after nearly seven hours of testimony, Judge Joseph Wrigley ordered Effie to stand trial for two first-degree murder charges. So he had initially dismissed the kidnapping charge against her, where I guess there were people saying that the witnesses that had overheard her talking to Carolyn walking to the car, it was unclear if they were she was luring her in like trying to lure her in or if if she just said hey I'll give you a ride home like I guess there was some discrepancy over that so he threw out the kidnapping charges there was a casino worker who would have helped make the state's case on that charge but did not show up to testify then in September 2006 she changed her plea to guilty to two counts of first degree murder and kidnapping of Carolyn Simpson and her unborn child, she accepted an offer from the state to dismiss the Bill of Particulars, which would allow her to avoid the death penalty. And I had a quick question. So this is something that I don't think a lot of people know, and you might be able to elaborate on this. So we have a plea deal here. That's what this is, a plea deal. I think that a lot of people don't understand how plea deals work. A plea deal usually is not offered unless it has been okayed by the family, correct? That is, in my experience, that has been the case, right? With uh, Carolyn's case, they'd actually taken it to her husband and he sat on it for about a week before he decided whether he wanted to accept, you know, this plea deal or not. So I think that's just a little something that a lot of people don't know is that when you see a plea deal happening it's not happening behind the family's back like they are aware of it they were probably the first ones aware of it and they are they have accepted that well, i think a lot of times in you know movies it's it gets you know that you have the family that's surprised yeah <laughs> you know that it's well happening, and i'm so. not saying that the entire family is informed yeah but what i am saying is Usually the person closest to that family member, whether it be the husband or the parents or a child, whatever, that person is given the option, like, here's the plea deal. This is what we're going to offer. And, you know, they might say, no, I absolutely do not want to do that. I I want you to take them to trial. And a lot of times they're like, okay, well, you know, we'll adhere to that. When you see a plea deal, someone has usually you know, been given that option next beforehand. Yeah, the next weekend. She did change her plea to guilty. She was given a plea deal. She did make a statement. It was a very short statement uh, after she entered her deal. She said, and I quote, I wish I could change that night, but I can't. I am very, very sorry. 
um, she said after she offered her apology, uh, she also told the court at one point that she said, quote, I wanted her baby. She was sentenced in Cleveland County Court by Cleveland County District Judge William C. Hetherington Jr. to two consecutive life sentences without parole. I don't think I mentioned this before. They had named the baby Justin, the boy. So for Justin and Carolyn, two consecutive life sentences. Why was it out of Cleveland County? Because it all happened in Hughes County. According to Simpson's aunt, Kathy Kine, she contacted Linda Evans, the assistant district attorney, seeking a change of venue because of the numerous problems in bringing the trial to court in Hughes County. But I don't know what problems And I think I read two judges pulled out or something. I don't know. I think I read somewhere. I can't. I'm not sure. But I want to say I read two judges had had pulled out of doing that case. That's a possibility. Maybe why. I do think that I saw somewhere um, where one of those judges had a history with Effie. Oh. Like she had tried her or something something along those lines where they recused themselves but so I never did have an opportunity to talk to her Mm. but I wish I had yeah yeah and then by the time that she got got to Tulsa she was like she wasn't saying anything so and and from what I understood she didn't say anything to anybody the whole time I'll tell you something interesting on a side note about uh, you know when to combat an insanity defense. Mm-hmm. One of the things I used to do is I would interview somebody and whenever they would confess, I would let them confess. And at the end of it, I would say, uh, do you know what the difference between right and wrong? Right. And they'd say, yeah, I know. Uh, are you sorry for what you did? Yeah. Consciousness of guilt. Yeah. So things like that will help combat a, an insanity defense. Because they wouldn't know are we, that. Are we getting a master class right now? Well, <laughs> that is philosophy, critical thinking 101. Yeah. If it's right and wrong. Okay, apparently I'm the one getting the master well, class. <laughs> what are the consequences going to be? Is it right or wrong? Or yeah. what your, what were the ethics behind the decision? Right. And generally when, after somebody has confessed, uh, you know, a lot of times they are remorseful. Mm-hmm. And that is the opportunity to ask them that right a lot going on in this case but a really good work though great work done in this case you did do your research though that was evident because well like the um the baby shower yeah as i recall you know i did some interviews where people said that she had claimed she had been pregnant for the last 12 months yeah and that there was a baby shower held. Yes. And people looked at it as kind of a joke. They, they didn't take her really seriously about it. Yeah. After nine months had passed. Right. They thought, well, she's just, that's Effie. She's just being silly and crazy that's like that. A, see that? And that's the thing is that that's what, because obviously the research that I did comes from a plethora, you know, mm-hmm. of articles and, and documents and all kinds of stuff. And so when you have articles that, say different things like one is saying she said that she'd been pregnant since spring and then another is saying she said she'd been pregnant since january and then another is like well she said that she had just gotten pregnant in september you're like okay well now we have we don't know what it really is because i i can't 
you know, go and talk to Effie. Actually, I thought about it <laughs> and I couldn't even find her in the system, which meant that she's probably been moved for her own safety somewhere for some reason. Um, but anyway, with me, it's like I, my first reaction is I want to say that she's um, my very first you know, thought is you want to say she's psychotic. She's got schizophrenia and all this stuff but schizophrenics are paranoid they're all over the place she might they might have said she was crazy but she was sure shut down so she knew well and that's the thing to not say anything hiding evidence also yes yeah so that just does not make me think she's yeah i I think some i think sometimes people just do bad things and you don't have to you know a quote normal person would see that you know the things that these people do that we talk about as mm-hmm. crazy you have to be crazy to do something like that but for them their you know control of that's just that's just who they are that's just how they think well i don't personally think she was crazy yes no. she did crazy actions yes she did a lot of things that didn't make sense to a lot of people but they might have made sense to her Yes, and that's where I'm. That's what I'm getting at. Is and so yes, that makes sense to them. Normal. And do I think she had some mental health issues? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, and she probably had some defiant disorders going on there. Definitely, that she's had since she was little. But the overall, when you know to keep your mouth shut and Mm -hmm. you know not to say anything and you're not all over the place, you're not schizophrenic. Yeah, you know what you did. Yeah, and you. You, or you keep your mouth shut for a reason. So I am on National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website. It does have an infant abduction section. And it has risk factors for infant abductions related to health care. Uh, yep, so that's talking about uh, infants that are taken from hospitals. From hospitals, yeah, right. Say, real, yeah, that's real concern. I will say there is a lot of information on this website. They have a um, a little like drop down menu that says the issues, and it goes over child sex trafficking, family abduction, infant abductions, missing from care, sex torsion, non family abductions and attempts, child sexual abuse. Like if you ever want to know anything about that, you should definitely get on here because they have yeah. downloadables. They have I get all risk that. factors. It's on my class. Yeah. So that is definitely a good resource. So the OSBI was founded in 1925, and um, originally uh, U.S. Marshals formed what is now the OSBI. It was uh, Bill Tillman, Heck Thomas, and Chris Madsen. I've heard those names. Me too. They were called the Three Guardsmen. They, uh, I believe, worked out of the Fort Smith uh, office with Judge Parker. But they, uh, they formed, they saw the need for uh, a law enforcement agency to, to be able to work uh, in what was Indian Territory at the time. But as Oklahoma became a state, uh, you know, it was clear that there needed to be more organized law enforcement. What year did you say this was? Well, so it, was, it was, would have been in the late 1800s when right. Bill Tillman and them would oh, have been okay. working. Wow. But yeah. the OSBI ultimately was officially formed in 1925. So okay. there's a 100-year anniversary coming up in just a couple of years. Here. That's oh. cool. That's, That's really neat. neat. Yeah. Maybe they'll do something cool for it. Yeah. So the, uh, as far as the OSBI cold case unit, you know, when, when I was working for the OSBI, we uh, originally got that grant through the Department of Justice. 
uh, we did hire an investigator. We work closely with our criminalists, with the OSBI. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe since then it's grown. And there are now uh, criminalists that are involved in um, the examination of evidence that that may have previously not been examined for DNA evidence. Ooh. There's also uh, very talented uh, agents that I used to work with mm-hmm. who are now on the cold case unit, uh, very talented people who are very determined and, and they do not give up. I, I know these people. That's awesome. And That's so they work That's really hard for that. Yes. yes. And uh, anyway, they do have the number of uh, 1-800-522-8017 as the OSBI number. You can get in touch with a cold case agent using that phone number. That's perfect. That's good for the... Yeah. And um, and I, I do know, is it... What's the website? I always forget if you want to send in an anonymous tip. Tips at osbi.ok.gov. That is the phone number for the OSBI. And you can get in touch with a, a cold case agent uh, using that number. Uh, you can also use tips at osbi.ok.gov to uh, send in a tip. If you have any information on a cold case uh, or any other investigation that you think uh, the cold case unit would want to know. So the playing cards, uh, as I understand it, those are uh, playing cards that are now in uh, different prisons in Ooh. Oklahoma. Okay. Which is a phenomenal idea. This is not a new idea, but it is something that the OSBI has had around now for a few years. Uh, I love the idea of it because it does generally give a uh, kind of a description, a basic description of a case that is open. Uh, it does give the one eight hundred five two two eight zero one seven number, and it, it's in prisons where uh, typically you They're have a lot of people. Actually, playing cards. Yes. Like, wow. Yep. I want it. I want one of those. Me I need too. to make a collection. Where do we? Where do you actually get those? Do you have to be in prison to get one? I would hope not. Okay. I think we could contact the OSBI and get a deck. I, yeah, I, would, I would love to have yes. a deck. Oh my gosh! Use that for my class. Yeah, I know students. Florida had used those years uh, before the OSBI did. Uh, but I thought it was a great idea. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. The idea behind that is, you know, obviously, with homicides, you know. It's typically where somebody didn't just kill somebody and that's it. Yeah. You know, they have people that they've confessed to or talked to in prison uh, and word gets out, right? Oh, yeah. So if you have any information, you see something like that, you'd be like, hey, Eddie told me about that two years ago. I remember this case. Yeah. Yeah. That could be pivotal. That's that's a really great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah. I know you can go on and view them on the OSBI website. The biggest thing that we want to know is well at least the biggest thing that i want to know um we hear a lot of things about the osbi working these cases they're doing stuff and here's the thing i now you can correct me if i'm wrong but from what i understand the osbi doesn't just come in they're not they don't just show up and they're not like i'm taking over this case it's like a thing where that department has to request the assistance right that is correct yes So what happens is if a, let's say a police department believes they need the assistance of the OSBI, what will happen is they can request us, uh, but the request has to come from either a law enforcement agency or the governor's office. If a police department or sheriff's office, for example, if they need help, they can request the OSBI to do only a small uh, sliver of tasks. Uh, They don't need to take over the entire case. Okay. They may just want them to do a certain number of, of actions in an investigation. Okay. Or 
they may say, hey, take this whole thing over. Or they might say, hey, take it over, but work with our deputies. Uh, you know, make them go with you and have them make sure that they're uh, right along uh, as you're leading the investigation. So there are always stipulations on what you can and can't do, depending on what case you're covering. It depends on the case. And, and a lot of times, you know, in Oklahoma, uh, the OSBI has a good working relationship with uh, local and, and other state law enforcement officers. So generally, uh, when a local law enforcement agency uh, has that need, they would go ahead and, and uh, say, hey, we want you to work it. Uh, we'll help you, but we want you to just take it over. A lot of times when in a homicide, for example, that, that's generally what would happen. And, and that actually answers my question, too, because we're working the um, Shauna Jones case. Yes. And we were like, why did the OSBI only come in and process the truck? And then they just left because mm-hmm. right. that's what they were asked to yep, do. Exactly. So if uh, in a case where uh, if they were requested only for crime scene assistance mm-hmm. and they only wanted them to process a certain vehicle, that that's what they would do. Okay. Uh, if they were not requested for anything else, then that would be the end of it. OSBI has some very experienced criminalists. They've, they have seen a lot of scenes. They've observed a lot. They've been there and done that. So with the experience that they have that, that maybe smaller agencies may not have, it's a good idea to bring somebody in that has the experience, uh, the knowledge, uh, they're well-trained, uh, and they do have the resources that they need to uh, collect evidence. Now, you were in the cold case division. How long were you in the cold case division? So we, we started what was called a cold case initiative, okay. and that was about 2010, somewhere in there, and that was through a DOJ grant, a Department of Justice grant. Okay. And the way that worked is um, basically uh, it was with the DNA so that we would review cases to see if there was any DNA evidence that that may have been collected back in the day that had not been yet analyzed. Essential. Very essential, yes. yes. They still have a cold case unit. They do, yes. When do your regular OSBI detectives say, this is a cold case, we're handing it over to our cold case division? Like, is there a certain criteria that has to be met for a I, case? Yeah, I'm not aware of what they're doing now. Uh, typically, though, if a case goes unsolved in a particular region of the OSBI, they would not immediately hand that over. Uh, they would continue, and they may hold that for, for years to try to investigate it. I think what they could do is is take a look at it uh, with the, the agents who are assigned to it mm-hmm. and say, hey, is there any evidence that maybe have been overlooked maybe something that has not yet been analyzed yeah any interviews that maybe uh, maybe that were not seen at the time that maybe should be checked out now if a case is brought back from the cold case um you know to be open again how long does it usually stay open can it stay open indefinitely or can it does it have like a time frame where if it's not solved in a certain time frame it goes back to no, they they generally would stay open you know an agent is assigned to different cases even if it's one you know when a new agent comes on they may be assigned cases that were not solved but but would still be assigned to an agent okay. and so that agent would then uh, if they had the opportunity they would go out and try to to generate new leads on that mm-hmm. So that's good. It doesn't have to go back just being cold. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking before we started recording. I'm so sorry. We talked before we recorded. Um, <laughs> we were talking about um, autopsy reports. And we were talking that, you know, in order to investigate it as a homicide, 
the autopsy has to state homicide. Some of those are revised, some of them, you know, whatever. Um, but I think, so the question is, if it's cold and it is not marked as a homicide, what then? If Well, if new information came about that uh, might indicate that it was in fact a homicide, mm-hmm. then I would expect that the OSBI would probably go back to the medical examiner's office and provide that new information to them okay. to see if that has any bearing on on the autopsy report. Is it as easy as just getting a confession or do you have to have the some physical like evidence to link it to go with it that was actually my question <laughs> that was what I, was uh, to ask. I cut in i cut in before you i think to best answer that i think that you really would need uh, either new information in the in the way of interviews where confessions were obtained that matches the evidence right um and then if there was if there was new evidence that was found physical evidence that was also found that previously had been undetected, uh, that would make a, uh, a difference also, I believe. Is there ever any pushback from the medical examiners that did not do the initial autopsy to amend? Is there any problems I have not, with that? I haven't personally experienced any pushback from the medical examiner's office. When, when I was with the OSBI, we had a great working relationship with them. Uh, if new information came about, they would absolutely t- take a look at that. Uh, any new evidence that came about uh, it's it's fairly rare that they would amend one but if they would it would be because of new information or evidence that was uh, right. found okay that's i mean you know yeah. that's that's great because you know you just never know and so that the mm-hmm. fact that they really do take that into account and that um the new information and the relationship even if they didn't do the initial autopsy is great mm-hmm. most of the time when you have the osbi involved you're seeing a lot of solves yes like you know what i mean like we have talked on this show about the rare occasion that, you know, some things have gone cold and certain people within, you know, the ranks that quote, didn't do their jobs or whatever. So really when you look at it, we've got, they've got a lot of solves. So I was going to say, is there ever a time in which the OSBI actually worked a case that that ended up going cold? There's cases that would be that OSBI would have been involved with where, at the time, no new information comes about, mm-hmm. but then suddenly somebody may come forward and provide you a piece of information that would lead that agent to then reopen that that case and take a look at it. Uh, Judy Hansen's case, for example, mm-hmm. would be one of those where you uh, you get new information and you begin to investigate that lead and uh, follow it, follow the evidence, and see where it takes you. Yep. Yeah. So if you have like Ada and you have different towns that have had some more crimes that are not more crimes maybe than others, but more crimes that have became famous, such as, you know, such as everything Debbie from Carter Ada. and, you know, <laughs> um, and so do you, does that make a difference on their resources? Do they get more resources when these things, do these, or does it just kind of stay the same? If that makes sense. So it, it really depends on like prioritizing city council, I mean. you know, yes. for each city. Uh, if you know, the city is the one who would be responsible for how much money a police department would get, right. so how many resources they get. Okay. Uh, but any of those, whether it's small or large, could call the OSBI for resources. If they need crime scene assistance, they could call and, and have the entire OSBI resources at their fingertips. So... 
who was it that you say that you said makes the decision to call in the OSBI? Like, if you're, let's say you're a detective, is it like your call where you're like, okay, I think I need the OSBI? Yeah. And then you kind of call that in, okay, let's get the OSBI in here. Right. A lot of times that may filter up through a chief or sheriff. Yeah. But uh, we've had p- patrolmen who have called. We've had other detectives oh, who have called. Okay, that's good. Uh, to know. And they, you know, they probably run that up their chain. But if if somebody calls, whether it's a, a sergeant who's on patrol mm-hmm. or a detective or sheriff, will come. The OSBI would come. Okay. Well, that's great to know that you. Do, it, it's not just one person. Like yeah. the really high up person. That's all the person that you know what I mean. And that right. it can be. That anyone can pretty reach much out call to them in. and yeah. get help. That's great. That's the important thing about the OSBI. And in my experience, when I worked for the OSBI, it was uh, the relationships that I developed over the years in working with them, uh, whether it's a sheriff's office or a, p- a police department, mm-hmm. I- any of those sheriff's offices or patrol uh, patrolmen, anybody from a police department, um, the relationships matter. And they know that whenever... Uh, they have a need uh, for something that might be more than they have resources for, they could call the OSBI and, you know, we would send somebody at that time to, to come help them. And you're probably, the OSBI is probably not sitting there going, why didn't they call us in on this, right? They're like, you can work your case. It's still your case until you decide to bring in the OSBI, right? Yeah, you can, um, you could have as a patrolman or as a police department mm-hmm. they can call the OSBI and we can be as as involved or as little involved as they want it's whatever they they request us for and they can call in at any time like right it doesn't have to be like oh well you got to call them within 30 days of that's the crime good, or that's a good like whatever question. like you can call the OSBI at any point in the investigation right sure yeah any law enforcement agency could call the OSBI uh, it's, you know, we always found when I worked for the OSBI, it was better to call sooner rather than later sure. after things have gone cold. Sure. So a new question that's just formed in my mind. For people whom think that their case maybe is not being handled appropriately, or maybe they think that the locals don't have the resources or whatever, but they themselves are like victim family or something like that. Is there a way that they can try to get the OSBI involved? So that would have to go through their local law enforcement agency. Okay. But that could be a police department, sheriff's office, district attorney's office even. Okay. And so if uh, they felt like maybe there's not as much being done or something like you that. You can go straight to the DA. They could go to the district yeah, attorney's okay. office. I didn't know that. And, and talk to them about that. Okay. That's really good to know. Is there um, something that family members should know? Uh, at least when I worked for the OSBI, they specialized and had an especially great relationship with rural counties. Mm-hmm. Uh, sheriff's offices in particular, if they had large areas that were not uh, manned by a certain police department, uh, if the victim's family uh, needed something, and it was a case that the OSBI had been requested on, mm-hmm. uh, if they needed something uh they could, they would interact with the OSBI agents or criminalists as well. Things have changed over the years so yeah. much. Uh, I remember when I was with the Ada Police Department, I had a cross deputization car. Oh, cool! And then they went away from that, and yeah, that, yeah. now we have McGirt. Uh, so there's it's a lot of different changes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So if it's a case that uh, the OSBI was not called in for, 
Uh, many district attorney's offices have victims advocate people. Yes. And that would be a good point of contact okay. for victims' yeah, families. Victim that would be great for people that, you know, yeah. don't know where to go. <laughs> I guess that wraps it up. Thank you guys for hanging out with me today. Oh, thank you. And <laughs> thank, thank you. you very much for being here with us yeah, today. for sure. I was glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, we learned a lot. We, and we got the exclusive. I know, and we learned Discovery a lot. Discovery Plus couldn't get, or whatever it was. <laughs> Discovery Plus. I don't know who it was. I'm, I'm so I'm addicted sorry, to Discovery, Discovery Plus. Plus. No, I'm addicted to them. I'm addicted to you, Discovery Plus. <laughs> but yeah, thank you guys for being here today, and we will catch you guys on a new episode next time. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?